Welcome everyone to the third. Welcome everyone to the third session of a Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah, Ethics, and Jewish Philosophy. Today's session is Zion is about the land and Zionism, um, and it's a pleasure to have um, Ms. Dean and Ms. Sager teaching at Risha again. Teaching at Risha. Good evening. Thank you. I'm gonna, uh, Renana will, as per usual, share the screen and we'll also put the link to the source sheet in the chat. Uh, once we've done that, we will get started. Can everyone see that? Oh, and I'm at the bottom of the source sheet, which is not a helpful place to begin. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Nice and big. Okay. Um, so, uh, Last week, we sort of ended by thinking a little bit about some of the potential kind of practical contradictions that arise when we start to think about uh, about Shemitah. And this week, we're going to kind of dive into one of those practical complications. Um, but as 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 this is a class in Jewish philosophy, pretty quickly, we will we will leave the practical in the dust um, to, to think about kind of what are the ethical questions that are raised uh, by halachot that seemed to us impossible to fulfill um, or sort of ethically complicated to fulfill. And that will be, I think, a good a good kind of jumping off point for thinking about what is our study of Shemitah doing for the way we think maybe about the rest of halacha or about uh, halachot that we interact with on a much more daily basis than Shemitah. Um, so I'm excited for, I think, what will be a, a really interesting conversation. So um, we're going to start with um, a, a Jewish philosopher who was very new to me, um, I, I, I recently discovered Nima Adlerbloom, who uh, has wrote um, a book on Ral Bag and also this this memoirs of her childhood and introduction and approach to Jewish philosophy. Um, she was a student of John Dewey. Uh, she grew up in the the kind of old yeshuv um, as the child of a sort of rabbinic dynasty. And she is a really fascinating figure for a lot of reasons, but I think what, what we get out of her little piece here is really just a kind of introduction to the problem. So as part of her memoir, um, she describes kind of the life of a kid in Jerusalem in the early 1900s, in, or right, late 1800s, early 1900s in Israel. And this so one she's I writing about what went on in the Shemitah year, 1888, 1889, um, and the kind of problems that it, that, that it raised. So if I could get someone to read, um, we'll read the first paragraph, which is kind of her initial description, and then um, and then we'll get the, the more, uh, the sort of direct quotes as well. I was just going to say that I saw Sarah at one point this summer when she had just discovered Nima Alderbloom and was very excited uh, and was telling me about this this person she discovered. I, I, I would, I would have to that. say that I think the the starting point of women writing Jewish philosophy, uh, I did not think was in the 19th century, and I have been corrected by 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 her, um, or at least Jewish philosophy that that kind of was obviously presenting itself as that. Um, so here we are. Um, but this is this is more of just a kind of historical account of what she saw going on around her, and then she uses that to kind of uh, build a build a broader picture. I think the one other piece of background I want to throw out there is that one of her kind of like uh, intercommunal axes to grind that she has in this book overall is there was a sort of charge at the time that the rabbis in Yerushalayim were kind of overly machmer and even kind of extremist. Um, and she, throughout the book, says they're not extremists, they're not extremists, they're not extremists, which obviously tells you that she thinks that some people think that they are. Um, and she wants to get you to think differently about what it is that they're doing. And she brings the, the Shemitah case as a kind of example of um, why these rabbis are not quote unquote extremists. Um, can I have somebody read just this first paragraph? Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead. Thank you. Okay, uh, Nima Oldman Memoirs of Childhood and Approach to Jewish Philosophy. Jacob Mordechai's Devar Shemitah, Research into Laws of the Talmud, referring to the sabbatical Jubilee years, was written on the account of the controversy regarding the cultivation of the land in the Shemitah year 
1888-1889. The administrators of Zichron Yaakov, Ekron, Petatikva, and Rishon Litzion came to Jerusalem to talk the matter over with the rabbis and hoped that they might find a way whereby the tilling of the soil would not be interrupted. Shmuel of Salant, in the, in the name of his Beit Din, decreed that the laws of Shemitah must be strictly applied, and he appealed for financial assistance to Baron de Rothschild, an older philanthropist, Jacob Mordechai. But Jacob Mordechai, on the other hand, uh, felt that a careful study of Shemitah laws might point towards some heter, permissive easement. Uh, tell me when to stop. The agitation. Yeah. Start there, and then we'll we'll get so so just this is just a historical background. Right, Yaakov Mordechai, um, the person she's referring to is um, is Yaakov Mordechai Hershenson, uh, who is her grandfather, um, and so she is the the daughter of Chaim Hershenson, um, who was a sort of important rabbinic figure in his own right. Um, but Yaakov Mordechai Hershenson is an important rabbi in Jerusalem at this time, and is. Uh, needs to write a, a, a kind of treatise on Shemitah. And it's not really a halachic treatise. It's a treatise on why we ought, we ought to really, um, why we ought to uh, think about Shemitah in a different way or sort of what's basically begging the rabbinic community broadly, especially in Europe, to start thinking about Shemitah in a different way because he feels... Otherwise, his his community is not going to survive. So you can see that, as she calls it, agitation um, in the next little chunk. Okay, can or I you just can keep you can keep yeah, reading but, the next? Yeah, but can I ask ask a question or a comment? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. interesting. Who are these administrators of these communities? They are are they one one would think the early uh, the first earlier most of the the the, uh, the Olim were um, were secular. Um, yeah. So, right. So, who are these people? It's true that that there were, uh, yeah, lots of Olim in this period who were quite secular. Um, but she is part of a community that is not, um, and and is really very much, even if it's not always all that kind of from. Let's say uh, it's nonetheless very much concerned with. Uh, a kind of sort of spiritual identification as Jews. So some of these communities are communities that are led by people who really care about sort of passing halacha. But even if not, there are people who kind of feel like they need to be above board, even if they are not um, sort of otherwise committed halacha. But the community that she grows up in um, is one where, you know, there's a small yeshiva and Sort of, she talks about halacha as just like the stuff of her life and the basis of her experience in childhood, which is part of what she's trying to to draw out in this book. Um, so yeah, th these communal administrators really do care, um, even if they care in a way that might look a little unfamiliar to to some of us, depending on where we where we sit, kind of denominationally. Um, but if they are secular, um, it's interesting that they were fully aware of the law shvita. And they weren't just going to say, well, they weren't, they weren't going to be dismissive of it. And they had some, I don't know what is respect for it, but uh, felt it was connected and we had to somehow deal with it. Connected yeah, to I think, right. 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 Even, even the, so they're not like the, I would say like sort of standard running, these people are not kind of standard running the middle secular Zionists, but they are people who are, have a kind of diff, yeah, they, they care about this, even if they, care about it only kind of instrumentally, they want to know like, how are we gonna deal with this problem? Part because like the agricultural piece of it, even if, right, even if you don't really care about Shemitah, like the person buying your oranges starts to care about Shemitah and all of a sudden now I have to figure out what I'm gonna do. So it, it's a live issue for them, um, but they also feel like really precarious. Um, And it's also, it's very clear the way she describes it that they go there asking for a hetzer very explicitly. They don't sort of go there and say like, what should we do? They go there and they ask for a hetzer very explicitly. All right, so keep keep going. Okay, um, someone else can simply read, but I don't mind. Yeah, if, they cannot be a, if they cannot be a found a means for a hetzer in accordance with the deen, they'll be untold loss, which will endanger the lives of hundreds of Jewish souls. 
who have no way whatsoever to sustain themselves during the Shemitah. There is also some ground for apprehension that it might cause the philanthropists engaged in this great mitzvah to weaken and withdraw their aid, and all this holy endeavor might collapse. It is my advice that the colonists should issue a public call to all our rabbis, both in Palestine and outside Palestine, to point out the way in which they should walk, according to the letter of the law of the Holy Torah. This would be a most proper approach, right in the eyes of God and man. As for myself, I'm acceding to their request to look into the matter without any intention of making a halachic decision, but only to arouse and plead before the rabbis to know the statutes and laws that they may find what can be done in accordance with them. First of all, it is necessary to look into the matter of Shemitah at this time as to plowing and sowing. If a pentateuchal prohibition, then there is no hope of a leading way out. But if it's a rabbinical injunction, the Rabbanan, then the basis for leniency might be found in the argument that the Talmudic rabbis did not intend for their decree to apply where it would cause such a great loss. So I think there are a few really important points to draw out here. The first one is that there's a there's a distinction which we're going to see later between kind of the what, between Dean and a kind of broader notion of halacha or a broader set of um, things we might think of as kind of part of a halachic process. That's something that will come up later as we as we move uh, through the rest of this year. Um, but he really thinks that first of all, it's he's not actually going to pass in this question, even though he's actually in a position to do that. Um, he's just going to look into the sources and see what he finds. But he's very much aware that if he that he kind of has to decide a certain way or he thinks his community won't survive. The other thing I think it's worth spelling out is one of the major issues here is not only sort of what are we gonna do very practically, but what is our relationship gonna be to diaspora communities that are paying for, for our existence basically and are making our lives possible. Um, and there's a sense both that we have to be really cognizant of that and that too much dependency will, will just cause frustration. Um, whether that's both just because it's like a, too much of a financial burden, maybe also because some of these diaspora people may not be super enthused about their level of attention to these halachot. Um, either one of those things, I think it could be at play, but there is some sense that uh, one of the things that's actually being negotiated here is, a, is an Israel diaspora kind of question. Um, yeah, okay. So this I think sets up the initial problem and gives you some sense of like, how severe uh, on the ground it seemed like people people really thought that this was. Okay, um, Sarah, do you want to say anything about this? Is just oh yeah, this is just a, this is she is summarizing the introduction to his book, and this is a screenshot from that if you want to look at it in Hebrew. But her translation is pretty simple. Her summary is pretty simple. So I we want to before kind of launching into. Uh, sort of our hardcore, more philosophical sources uh, bring a couple of images. Um, it's not a, a class or something with me if there aren't images at some point, um, since I, I'm here to argue that ethics includes, you know, what things look like and what we see around us. And I, I just wanted to show like a picture like this one. You can go look at, you know, pictures of the old Yeshua and you'll see a lot that looks like this, just to see kind of like how significant agriculture was to this society. And what I found really interesting, or the, one of the reasons I brought this image is obviously it's almost all women. I guess there's this one gentleman here. Um, and, and and they're out in the fields and they're, you know, trying to make, you know, Palestine, the land of Israel, agriculturally productive and are engaged in that work. And that is sort of their point to being there. Um, and, and so it was sort of a chance to really see how how much this was going to be a question of of survival of the values of this community. Um, also, they're wearing fantastic hats, so that seemed important. Um, the other thing I just the other image we brought is also actually so last week we looked at um, some of the text of Rav Cook. We're going to look at it again tonight. Um, but this is actually an image of what some of these documents looked like. And I, you know, get a sense of like, this is the proclamation of the chief rabbi um, regarding Shemitah observance and collecting a communal fund to support those who observe Shemitah without compromise. So one, even that tells you that there's going to be 
um, a group of people who are keeping Shemitah without compromising, and there's going to be another group of people who compromise, and we're going to live in a society with both of those, um, which we can talk about a little bit. But um, I just think that, like, actually seeing what some of these documents looked like, like this is a, a message or, you know, a proclamation to the community um, and not just, you know, a safer. I just want to note that it is uh, bilingual. Right, the left yeah. hand. Does anyone want to say anything about what they're kind of noticing in these images before we move to um, more hardcore, hardcore text? Um, Let me just, I just want to know one thing, right, which is that the, um, it's all good and well to sort of talk about like, relying on God for the land, but this is when, when that becomes less of a theological question and more of a question of how you're going to feed yourself, um, when it's been the, the former for a really long time, I think that that brings out a lot of kind of interesting tensions. Um, and, and some it, of these images, I think, draw that out. It is interesting. Like if he had to do this today, it'd probably be a tweet. And here you have this very long document thoroughly, you know, which is the public document, not just like the text of a, of a teshuva or something that he's putting out there because people, I guess had the patience to read all of this. Yeah, Hebrew, I mean, Hebrew and Yiddish. Yeah, the yeah. right side in Hebrew, the left side in Yiddish, which is interesting uh, as to you know who he's addressing in his mind. Um, and I was thinking before when you were talking about dependence on diaspora. Um, there's also desire to address the rabbis of the diaspora as well as of the land of Israel, which is interesting to me that there is still this sense of Yeshua could come from beyond the borders, even halachically, not just uh, philanthropically. Yeah, and I think you can say something even stronger. They actually, right, like Rabbi Yaakov Mordechai is like a, a relatively big guy at this point, but he's, I mean, he's young, but still, he's um, nonetheless feels that the appropriate thing for him to do is write a whole book collecting the sources and then it sort of hand it out there in order to just like exhort the, the kind of gdolim in Europe to, to take a stand. He doesn't want to take a stand himself. Now, maybe he doesn't want to take him stand himself because he thinks that he's like kind of implicated in the whole thing too much. Maybe he thinks he doesn't have the authority. Maybe he trusts them more. Like we can come up with all kinds of reasons that he might have for doing that. Um, but at this point, it really does seem like he's looking, they're looking both for financial assistance externally, but not wanting to take it, but they are wanting to take halakhic assistance externally. Yeah, as I said, there's a kind of interesting dance going on between I guess Jerusalem rabbis and rabbis in other settlements in you know in the yeshuv and uh, European rabbis and questions of rabbinic authority and right I mean I think one thing that we could talk about at length and maybe we don't have time but you know what does it mean to expect your rabbinic authority to make decisions about how you should operate on the land that you have to live on but they are actually in a very different space agricultural climate that this is not you know hovering over them as as an existential threat. Um, but yet you kind of have to rely on on people who aren't here to, to make that kind of decision. Um, it's a kind of interesting question. Yeah, I mean, it's a very different model of what PSAC looks like uh, than we might think of, of like lo asking our local community rabbi, like, you know, did I trace my kitchen today or something more, you know, kind of intense. Um, but it's not a foreign model for how PSAC looked historically, right? Like for a long time, there's this tradition of writing, you know, think about like the, the letters of the Rambam that are from far away. Um, that, yeah, that's a kind of- Interesting today, we would potentially go to a rabbi in Israel with some of these big questions. Yeah, you like, might, right? You might look, right? Or you definitely look at Israeli Psak as a kind of model and then think about like, okay, but in America, does it have to be different, right? Um, yeah, there's a sort of different arrangement of center and periphery, I think going on in the, in the early stuff. Um, and yeah, in a sense that the authority comes comes from somewhere else. Okay. So um, I wanted to take us to uh, 
to sort of take us up one level of abstraction. We've talked about kind of the historical features of this problem of trying to observe Shemitah in 1880s. Um, but I wanna take us to, to a kind of theoretical question that that raises, which is what happens when you find yourself in a situation where you think on the face of things, it seems pretty clear uh, what the halacha might demand of you. And also you think that that is not really tenable uh, for some reason of some ethical significance. Like what, how, how are you gonna think about that question? Um, is there some, so a lot of times this question gets phrased as, as you see in the title of this essay from Ravar and Lichtenstein, um, is there some other ethical set of values that I appeal to beyond what the halakha demands such that then I can, I can figure out whether I ought to like kind of put, put the apparent demands of halakha to one side and then follow those other ethical principles or maybe I ought to not follow them and I ought to just stick with the halakha and like quiet that other voice in my head. Uh, that's something that scholar uh, Renit Nershai calls it kind of akedah theology. Um, or might it be that that actually isn't the right way to think about it. Halakha and ethics just kind of are the same thing or are just sort of deeply imbricated. So those are sort of two options, right? You might think uh, these two are really separate discourses and they have a certain kind of relationship where one trumps the other in different cases, or you might think they're kind of both the same thing. Um, so the mo in some ways, like one of the most famous treatments of this question is an essay by Rev. Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, who was for many years uh, a Rosh Yeshiva at uh, Gush Etzion. Um, rather. Um, and in this essay, he tries to to an analyze um, a distinction between halakha and din, which is what I sort of pointed to you in, in the, uh, the initial piece. And um, where, where halakha, we might think of halakha, like din as sort of with a small d, is a bunch of different dinim, a bunch of different little rules, right? A bunch of different little judgments about particular questions. And you might think that halakha is just kind of the sum total of all those little pieces. Or you might think that halakha is some more global thing. And this is what he's kind of trying to negotiate in this essay. Uh, can I get somebody to read? Uh, sure. Great. Uh, so for attention to values by Rabbi Aram Lichtenstein, uh, essentially then the question is whether halakha is self-sufficient. Its comprehensiveness and self-sufficiency are notions many of us cherish in our more pietistic or publicist moments. If, however, we equate halacha with din, if we mean that everything can be looked up, every moral dilemma resolved by reference to code or canon, the notion is both palpably naive and patently false. Which of us has not at times been made painfully aware of the ethical paucity of his legal resources? Who has not found that fulfillment of explicit halachic duty could fall well short of exhausting clearly felt moral responsibility? There's an, if you scroll down, there's a, there's a, actually, let's, let's stop before we go on to the, can we scroll back up, Renana? I'm sorry. Um, can somebody just like give me a summary of what he's trying to say here? What are the options that he thinks are just like, as he says, palpably naive and patently false. What's the wrong, what's the Havamina is trying to reject? That if you have a specific question, you could look it up in a halachic text and it would give you an answer. Then the challenge would be that that answer probably doesn't really get you what you think are all the moral issues involved in your question. So. Yeah. Then be faith. Right. So there's, there's sort of two problems, right? One problem is it's not going to, the paucity of it, of the ethical, the ethical paucity of his legal resources. So that ethical paucity might be just, well, it doesn't answer my question. I've never, you know, I've never, there's no halakha about self-driving cars because there never was a self-driving car until we, so now we have to come up with another set of resources to think about a self-driving car. Um, or I think this is the, the sort of second question he's asking is who has not found that the fulfillment of an explicit halachic duty could fall well short of exhausting clearly felt moral responsibility. Maybe if we think that all we have to do is look everything up in a book and do only what, what the sort of various dinim say, then we might actually turn out to be kind of a terrible person, right? And there's lots of good uh, halachic and agadic material on that front um, of, you know, sort of, you know, Jerusalem was destroyed only because 
only because people failed to judge Lifni Mishrat Zadin. Um, that's the source that he spends a lot of time with in this, this essay. Um, but it seems like, right, one other problem you might have is just not only does it not answer my question, um, but if I just follow, do things according to the books, I would actually not be doing what I ought to do. I would be kind of terrible. Um, and so you can see how that might play out in the, uh, the 1880s Schmitzer case also where like, yeah, I can look up in a book. And if I look it up in a book, probably it's gonna say I shouldn't sow or plow. Lo and behold, that's gonna lead to a lot of people being very, very hungry. That seems on the face problematic to me. I can't, I can't stomach that. Harvey, did you wanna say something? Oh, you just, your last sentence is exactly what I was gonna say. So what are the laws of Shemitah? We look it up. This is what we do, what we must do and not do. But but, but if, if we do all that, people are going to starve to death. Right, there's something, so right, like there's something um, that there isn't enough in the halakhic resources to deal with the actual ethical problem, right? Sort of like that's too thin um, to say, oh, well, Shemitah means you don't plow and you don't uh, reap and whatever. But wait, we have all these other ethical questions that that doesn't actually get to. Great. So then the question is, all right, so he, he's now told us that this approach is bad. So if you're like me, um, you might then want to know what, now that I know that this approach is bad, what approach am I supposed to have? Um, and unfortunately for you, you're, you're going to get only a partial answer to that question. So apologize in, apologies in advance. Um, we all just read the next one. There are, of course, situations in which ethical factors, the preservation of life, enhancement of human dignity, the quest for communal or domestic peace, mitigation of either anxiety or pain, sanction the breach by preemptive priority or outright violation of specific norms. However, these factors are themselves a halachic consideration in the most technical sense of the term, and their deployment entails no rejection of the system whatsoever. So initially, I set it up as there's this tension between like the apparent demands of halacha and our ethical concerns. So you might come along and say, I, I once read that um, actually, you know, when we need to save a life, then we can override uh, even, you know, really important mitzvot in the Torah. Therefore, um, obviously there's an ethic that sort of supersedes halacha. And here Rav Aaron is saying, no, that's not what's going on there. What's going on is actually just a different halachic rule. So just as there's a halachic rule that says, I don't know, you can't let a, light a bonfire on Shabbat, there's also a rule that says that if a person's going to die because they're too cold, you can light a fire or get someone, probably should get someone to light your fire, but whatever, um, right? That there are things that you can do um, that are already built into the system. They're not external to the system. They're part of the system. So maybe the way we actually initially phrased the question didn't quite get things right or didn't um, didn't draw the boundaries in the right way. Because we phrase the question of like, oh, well, if we just do dinim, that doesn't work. But me is actually much, much broader than that once we start actually really attending to the details of the technical system. Okay, can I get someone just to finish off this last little piece? It goes without saying that Judaism has rejected contextualism as a self-sufficient ethic. Nevertheless, we should recognize equally that it has embraced it as the modus operandi of a large of large tracts of human experience. These lie in the real of Leif Nimishur Adin. In this area, the halachic norm is itself situational. Okay, so just just to to, to split through some of this, right? Um, it's not the case. So, so a, a kind of contextualist ethic is one in which what I do is I, I, I don't, I don't go around with a bunch of rules that I apply in the same way in every situation. I, I come to a situation. And I look at that particular situation. I don't deploy some some general sense of like one ought to do X. I just look at the particular details of what might happen in a given context. And Ravon is saying that's not something that is ever going to work on its own from, from a halachic perspective, um, for, at least from his Jewish perspective. What, but at the same time, we do recognize that that's how we actually have to operate a lot of the time. So there are cases when halacha itself demands that we keep in mind um, the sort of features of a, uh, specific features of a situation. So if that's true, 
we then have to go back to our initial question, which is, is there an ethic outside of halacha? And in the end, Rev. Aaron's sort of famous last line in this essay um, is, you define your terms and you take your choice. As in, if you think that halacha is just the kind of list of rules I look up in a book, then obviously there's an ethic outside of halacha. But that's not really a good picture of what halachic norms are. Halachic norms actually often include this kind of more specific contextual situational awareness. There's something more kind of textured going on in a lot of halachic norms. So while it does seem like there is this kind of push and pull between ethics and uh, let's say specific norms of halacha, nonetheless, where we draw those lines is going to make this question a lot more ambiguous because when we start to actually get into the nitty gritty of the rules, we're going to find all kinds of things that seem to kind of bump us up to the level of meta-analysis um, in ways we might not have expected. Questions or thoughts about that before we move on? We're now going to kind of think about how how Shemitah kind of might fit into some of these more abstract um, categories or uh, theories that Rava Aaron has listed and also return to Rava Aaron. So okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move on now for us. Um, we're gonna go back to Rav Cook, who we began with or we looked at a lot last week. Um, this is some, a different section of um, the introduction to Shabbat Haaretz. So, right, Shabbat Haaretz again. Right, it, it's the introduction is this beautiful kind of mystical philosophical work. The actual work itself is a very technical halachic work about the the compromise, uh, the heter mechira, where you can sell your land to a non-Jew and they can work the land, and 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 so people can eat from that food um, and it's a sort of technical workaround um, to allow Shemitah to kind of be observed in some sense um, or we're not breaking halacha um, but like Shemitah as it's imagined in the Bible is also not really being uh, lived out. Um, so at this point in the introduction he's saying we have to we have to have this compromise. Um, this is going to be the right thing to do. Um, and then he's going to go on to say like what we're still getting out of Shemitah, um, even with this compromise. Um, I, I I think just it's interesting to point out because we also saw this in the image before from Rob Cook. He does say that like you could be a really pious person who doesn't sell your land and who tries to live out Shemitah in the way that it's like biblically envisioned. Um, and that's a laudable and pious thing to do, uh, but you don't have to do that. Um, as one of my professors would want me to point out what's being created in certain ways is like a, and this idea of like a two class ethic where they're like some extremely pious people who are gonna do it, um, you know, to this kind of extreme way, the way that's imagined the Bible, and that's like a really laudable thing. But most normal, regular people, you know, you don't have to do that, and that's okay. So we're gonna have two. He's gonna allow for these kind of two classes to develop in terms of Shemitah observance, which is interesting. Um, but we're gonna look at what he says right now about what we're gonna have to do and what that means for how Shemitah uh, affects us. Um, can I have someone read the first two paragraphs of this? Now go ahead. Now the Shemitah year has arrived, according to the reckoning we have. Owing to the poor situation of our settlement in the land, we'll have to make do with the temporary expedient that was endorsed some time ago by the great authorities of the generation, who understood deeply the situation of the new settlement in the Holy Land. They had a penetrating sense of what it could become in the future and knew not to belittle its smallness because they understood that plowing these first furrows on our land would be a gateway of hope for our people and portend the, the growth of, of a salvation that came from the Lord. They realized their historical obligation to smooth the path of the new settlements and as much as possible, not let the mitzvah that are connected to the land be obstacles 
God does not make tyrannical and unreasonable demands of his creatures. Keep going. Yeah. The circumstances that allow us to be leading regarding misfortune pertaining to the whole community when there is a likelihood of significant financial loss or in a temporary situation of acute need are all compounded in this case to an extent unparalleled in the annals of legal questions that have arisen throughout lengthy exile. Okay, thank you. So what what is he saying here about like, what do we need to do um, and what's kind of the principle that he's using to argue um, for, for why this is what we need to do? Well, the land is being settled again for the first time in a long time and then and then that was for this enterprise to work to start stopping doing this uh, a few years into the enterprise would um, would would derail the whole exercise and and uh, i mean and he concludes by saying that um uh, that god is not going to uh, wouldn't want us to make unreasonable demands yeah, so he acknowledges that there's like a new kind of historical reality um, that requires, you know, uh, a new sort of new insight. Um, because, you know, in certain ways, the, the work of settling the land is is the really important sort of religious work that's going on. Um, and we have to like, allow, you know, we have to do the things to cultivate that and that requires us to work around these like technical idea of Shemitah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, this like one sentence of like, God does not make tyrannical and unreasonable demands of his creatures, um, says it all. I mean, when Sarah was talking about, you know, some people would say, well, the halacha is what it is, and you just have to do it no matter what, right? That's kind of saying, well, God could make tyrannical demands, and you have to do it anyways, right? That being like, kind of the example of the Akeda. And he's like, no, that's not we reject that as an idea if it, the demand seems so unreasonable and violent there must be another way around it yep harvey. can i just jump in for one second oh, yeah harvey it just um there's an interesting comparison between this and the the hershenson approach which basically says well if it's derabanan we have what to work with if it's deraita we have nothing to work with so you better figure out a way to make it to Rabbanan, which by the way, as you all saw, is probably a hard sell, I think. Um, there are probably things you can do, but it's it's like not easy work to, to, to kind of massage that into, into merely a Rabbanan thing. Um, but he's, Rev Cook is actually opening the door for something else, which is like, God doesn't make tyrannical demands. So if it seems like God is making a tyrannical demand, we better come up with another way. Even if that demand is derisive, apparently, right? Sort of on, on, on a- on Doesn't bring in that decision. First read. Harvey had something to say. Yeah, so this kind of seems a bit of a contrast to the way we often, maybe today, look at halacha and our understanding and uh, maybe not so new. Uh, you know, if there's, if there's a halacha, you know, according to the Rambam, you know, we don't really understand any of the reasons. But we need to do, we could try and understand them, but we just need to do, despite our lack of understanding. What Rav Cook is saying here is different. He's saying, well, there's a situation in, in, at hand, and um, it doesn't matter what the, uh, we can't just simply stick to the rules as, uh, as, as Rav Lichtenstein kind of refers to. We can't just stick with the rules and keep going. Uh, because it's going to the, the consequences to, to everything else are, are, are dire. Therefore, um, we're not just going to take that approach. We don't understand. We just have to do it. We feel there's something else bigger about this uh, that we have to do. So I think it's a bit of a, I would use the word radical, it's a bit, complete, it's a bit of a radical approach. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that he's also sort of saying not only that we have to avoid uh, the disaster that would be upon us, 
but he's emphasizing the positive, namely, yeah, we may need to uh, be lenient right now, but it's for the sake of an eventuality in which everyone will understand how holy and important. And in other words, it will lead to where we want to go, even though it seems lenient right now. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. That like, if you, I, I would really recommend reading this whole introduction, it's beautiful, but that he really has a sense of like, we are, you know, we're in the land, we're working the land, we're having to deal with this idea of this problem of Shemitah, and we're gonna make, do this work around around it. But this is like part of getting to the moral work that Shemitah is going, is trying to do on us. Like we're still kind of participating eventually in what Shemitah is, is trying to get us to do. Um, and the next uh, section I bring, we'll kind of discuss that a little bit more explicitly. Yes, Harvey? Yeah, so I mean, he's well, he's kind of continuing what Julie said. He's almost saying that if we don't do this, then this redemption of the land and the redemption of the Jewish people isn't going to happen. Because yeah. this is what he sees. He clearly sees it as the redemption of the Jewish people. And if we don't do this, that whole enterprise will be uh, destroyed. And I can give the analogy, you know, we just finished Hanukkah. The Maccabees um, were possibly the first to say, you know, they started off by not fighting on Shabbat and they would have, uh, and they, they realized if they didn't, well, this whole enterprise and this whole would have gone, we would disappear for the sakes of keeping the law. We would have been wiped out. So they, they took a very radical sort of approach, similar to Rav Cook's approaches. Yeah. I mean, there's the famous Gemara also about the destruction of of Jerusalem and, and you know, a very legalistic approach to Korbanot versus you know, allowing for one breach that would have saved the entire Jewish people. Um, so we have we have a number of examples of of kind of cases like that. But just it's worth noting that like, it, just imagine him saying this about some other mitzvah, right? Because um, I think it's easy on, where like I don't know you could talk about where you're really convinced that like the thing that the Jewish people needs in order to get through some difficult situation in the service of their further redemption is, you know. So the phrase it, it, it appears in the Talmud. I mean, they have this issue in other cases. So. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they absolutely have it in other cases. And I think it's it shows you both how familiar and how radical it is. Yeah, and this is definitely an idea that comes up in broadly and like, religious ethics, Western ethics, um, not just in Jewish ethics, that like God cannot be demanding the impossible. So if the, the brand seems impossible, we have to do more work. All right, I'm gonna read these last two sections of the Rav Cook before we go back to Rav Aaron. So in addition, learning itself leads to action. Studying the halachot will engrave them in our, on our hearts. From one Shemitah year to the next, more and more people will be cut up with enthusiasm. The holiness of Shemitah will emanate from the spirit of God that hovers over his people and land and spread to all life, to all God's people, and especially to those who live in the holy shelter of this precious land, in the sweet companionship of its loving refuge. The spirit of the Jubilee, of the Jubilee which lies latent, we don't know, what years ago, Bell, so we don't keep it at all, will appear from within the storehouse of holiness that is in the Shemitah and the sound of the shofar while herald salvation, rousing the sleepy and encouraging the recently redeemed. Beautiful language, if nothing else. Um, so I think like what I wanna get out of this or, or discuss is how do we still have Shemitah for Rav Cook, even if we can do this work around? Like what is the kind of moral, ben moral benefit and redemptive benefit he imagines for Shemitah? Do we, can we still access it even while we're kind of skirting around um, the actual observance? He's saying that studying it will help lead to at least the spiritual recognition of what Shemitah is trying to do and encourage that as the community gets more prosperous, it can look for more ways to observe it. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if he says like, oh, well, we will maybe get to observance here. I mean, I think that is implied, but it is a sort of just like, well, by studying it, you'll get the enthusiasm for it and that kind of holiness of it was going to emanate, um, you know, even without the sort of literal observance of it. Does that seem plausible to people? Well, Israel has a lot more active religion now than it did in Rav Cook's day. It doesn't fully observe Shemitah all these years later, though there are parts of Israel that try to, I think, right? So it's made some, he's made some progress. Well, I, I, I'm not sure actually how different it is because he already envisions that there are going to be some people who are going to do the really hard work of observing it and then who are relying on charity for that year and whatever. We still have, I think my understanding, like sociologically or whatever, is that that's still the case. Most people kind of rely on the Hatem Mechira or there's some other workarounds. There is a small portion of Israeli agriculture that, you know, totally leaves leaves the land behind and, and whatever, but that, that's a relatively small, small portion of the Israeli agricultural system at this point. I think this idea of learning legal action is, is, pretty, is, is kind of fundamental to the rabbis. That they, that they felt that we have to learn. We, we, every day we read about the Korbanot. Why are we reading? Well, maybe one day we'll be in a position to do it. And, and we learn about many things. In uh, if we learn Talmud that uh, have no real relevance today, other than we th we think that sometime in the future they will. So I don't think this is any different than that. I think the one thing I might say that's a little different, I think, again, kind of remembering what uh, Rav Cook says about Shemitah from last time, right? Shemitah for him is supposed to do this sort of spiritual and moral work on us as people, um, and he kind of thinks that that work you know that's not you know actually knowing how to do the law but just actually like our own spiritual and moral development can also happen from learning as it could happen from actually observance again what you know i i think you know probably to be fair to him he would say it's different or whatever if you want to ask but he's saying that actually the learning itself will allow the the halachot to be engraved on our hearts and kind of become part of us and and will build the enthusiasm and and allow the shemitah to to emanate. Um, so that right that there's still there's something about learning that is almost akin to practice. The other thing that just seems worth noting here is that that gives us a, a pathway for the diaspora, right? Um, we can we maybe we're maybe we're keeping shemitah in this year. Maybe, maybe, maybe we've done it, right? Um, or at least maybe we had access to that kind of spiritual mm -hmm. paradigm, moral paradigm that he, he thinks we can get by, by just talking about it. I'm interested to hear maybe at the end of this year, uh, whether you guys think that in this, this year is, is observance of Shemitah in itself in some meta way. I think Judy has her hand up. No, I was just gonna say, I mean, I'm not living in the land of Israel, but I have kids and grandkids there, uh, where they're often, I'm, I'm, this, you know, we're not there because of COVID, so we're not experiencing Shemitah there. Um, but sitting here in New York, I don't feel that during all these years, I mean, I, I'm sort of so comfortable and used to relying on the heterim. I don't think of it until this class, honestly, as an opportunity for some kind of spiritual growth or insight or time to take to, for insight or for getting closer to God. Uh, it's been a technical issue in my mind. And I kind of think that that's where the balance still falls for the majority. And so that Rav Cook's desire and hope has not really materialized. That, that would be my judgment of the situation today. So I think let's move to our next and final text, which is a return to Rav Haharon, who I think maybe. Um, will echo a little bit more of what your experience 
um, and we can discuss that tension and which one we think is maybe a more productive way of, of kind of going forward thinking about Shemitah. Um, so this is an, another essay of Rav Aharon's. All of these are, both of these are essays are collected in um, the collection Leaves of Faith. So this is was titled Thoughts About Shemitah from 1972 to 73. He then has like a coda, whatever, like seven or 14 years later. Um, and yeah, it's him kind of talking to his students about, about Shemitah. Um, one thing to know about Rav Ahron is he was a student of literature. And so he opens the essay with a discourse about the nature of tragedy and tragedy, tragic literature, and then is going to apply um, that those kinds of literary ideas of tragedy to to Shmita and to halakhic categories. Um, does somebody want to to read? And I think these, at least the first two, um, let's take together. You're looking for volunteers still? Yes. But the true nature of Shemitah remains a deep secret. The simple fact is that the Shemitah year of 5073 constitutes a halakhic tragedy. What remains for us today of this enhancing, enchanting vision, nothing but a hollow shell. The transition from an agricultural economy to an industrial one has taken most of the prohibitions of work off the agenda for nearly everyone. For most people, the situation is relatively convenient and also straightforward. They need not circumvent or destroy the prohibitions. They simply are lucky enough not to confront them. What options available to people who are anxious to observe the Kedusha of Shemitah with careful attention to the details? They can rely on the legal fiction that woe to the ears that hear this. The fields of Eretz Israel, from Lebanon to Egypt and from the Mediterranean to the Jordan have been sold or leased to non-Jews. All right, so how does this compare to, to Rob Cook? <laughs> Right, so he's recognizing that if you don't do the mitzvah, you're not really going to imbibe its spiritual essence and grow with it. And getting back actually to um, to Harvey's contrast of this with Corbinot, I'm a big fan of saying Corbinot, partly because I'm a Kohen, um, but there I think the, the diff <laughs> and, and I've given Divrei Torah about the value of it and what you can learn morally from it and so forth, but I think there that the point is we can't observe it because it's just, you know, we don't have a temple and and uh, and and so there the study and we have these phrases in Ashama, Farim Savatenu, and and we have some of those spiritual things. So you can probably get away with it. But to take, you know, the opposite case of just a straightforward Shabbat to say, well, people study Shabbat, but then they don't observe it, um, they'll still get the spiritual benefit. I think we think that that's really hard. It's hard to really feel what Shabbat's like unless you actually do it um, or do parts of it or, or something. And so Shemitah may be a little bit sort of in more lean in, in, in Lichtenstein's view, leans more that way, more towards like a Shabbat experience. How could you get much out of it uh, if you can work your way around it? Um, Whereas Rob Cook seems to feel it's more like the Corbinot that, okay, you know, you study it and, and think about it and, and good things will come. Um, also, right, they're, they're dealing with a little bit different issue. Rob Cook is having to choose between trying to get people to actually observe this mitzvah with all the costs. And Lichtenstein is pointing out that actually we in America who don't observe the mitzvah, it's not on us to observe. So he's more lamenting that we don't even sort of think about it because we're exempt. Yeah, he. I think he is writing mainly for uh, more of an Israeli audience or, you know, his own yeshiva students in Israel. And this was, I think, originally written in Hebrew. Um, but yes, and definitely he has a sense of like, even if even if we like got rid of the Hatimachira, like for most people who still like, like can we just like agriculture is not a part of their life and they're not, we can just kind of ignore it. Um, you know, all of us sitting in the diaspora can just ignore it. Um, we don't actually have to kind of deal with the challenge of that, that it's supposed to present us. I'm going to just read the last um, paragraph and then we can 
wrap up. Pizza is kind of that way nowadays, right? Even if we observe kashrut, we claim to get some moral benefit ultimately by kashrut. We certainly don't have that, most of us don't have that close contact with animals, really feel the value of shechita versus, you know, other forms of slaughter or something. Yeah, I mean, what I, you know, one question is like, right, unlike Korbanot, where we no longer have the Beit HaMikdash, and so, okay, we have to, we're doing, we're praying or we're learning to make up for that. And Shabbat, which feels like obviously the way we keep Shabbat has changed, but we've had it continuously over time as Jewish people. Shemitah is this weird, you know, maybe it was, you know, we don't know if it was really observed in, in ancient times, but, you know, it's, it's, is about a space that, you know, exists that's still there, um, might have been kept, but in this kind of theological context that we're no longer in, where we could like rely on God, uh, perhaps. And then we didn't observe it for long and now we're back. And so it's a kind of interesting, uh, you know, a little bit different than, than also something like Trita, where like we observed it the entire time, our experience of it has maybe changed. Um, all right, but let me read this last paragraph and then we can bring it all together. In a formal sense, perhaps, all is well, but we are not fulfilling the mitzvah of giving the land its Sabbath of complete rest. All of us, those who support and oppose the Heter alike, are not so much observing the Shemitah as avoiding its observance. I do not see any way to improve the citation in the foreseeable future, but at least let us feel the pain of it, as Hillel did in his day. Since we have no choice, we will make sure all of the heterim and other means of circumvention, and we will bow our heads before the sad reality. But we will not, nay, a thousand times not, make peace with it. We will admit our failure and regret it and hope that God will provide what is missing. So um, I just kind of want to return before we finish to right, the earlier piece of uh, Rav Aharon that we read about, you know, what, what do you do when you have a potential conflict between ethics and halakha and like how, you know, how does Shemitah kind of fit into his categories or whatever, right? Is it, you know, if the, the simple black and white halakha would say, you have to observe Shemitah too bad if you go hungry. Um, but there isn't a kind of like pikuach nefesh type Thing already in the halakhic system before modernity to kind of bring in as part of the halakhic system to circumvent it. And instead, right, is there some, what there is some kind of contextual problem and a, a real problem. And so halakha maybe has been kind of expanded in a certain way to have a workaround, but there's something very tragic for him in that, or there's something that is lost and we have to like sit in that loss and, and mourn it even if you I would say that like formally we've kind of resolved this tension we have a workaround so that our ethical principles are in state you know are, are kept are kept in shape we still have you know people are still making a livelihood but there's this there's this tension that we're going to continue kind of to wrestle with um can I yeah, his last phrase leaves me hanging uh, and hope that God will provide what is missing. It, it is so vague. It doesn't tell us whether God should provide us with a halachic understanding that we're not getting or God will tell us not to observe it or what does it mean to say God will provide what is missing it's just sort of mm -hmm. non-descriptive to me yeah and my my reading probably of this is that I don't think actually he thinks that there can be a real halakhic compromise between the kind of reality on the ground and or there is a halakhic compromise that but there isn't going to be a way to harmonize the ethical reality and um, and like the original halakha or the point of the original halakha sort of in modernity. My guess is that's like a one little line of like messianic hope. Um, but maybe other people have other opinions or know more about this essay or Rabbi Haram. I think that's sort of what he's 
hinting at like this is like I think he's kind of throwing up his hand and saying like we have to realize this is a tragedy we have to mourn this and we have to sit in that forever until like there's a supernatural uh you know solution and we live in a in a place where the, we won't have these tensions and that's not something humans can bring about I mean, it is it is interesting to imagine if if Israel had taken a somewhat different course than it has so far, um, and more of the people embraced a religious viewpoint, so that the majority were perhaps not Haredi, but some sort of you know positive sort of religious ex experience. If the economy was such that the rabbis and the technocrats felt, hey, if we actually suspended agricultural production for a year. In Israel, we might lose some income, but we wouldn't starve, and people could would actually have that year off. And maybe we have to extend some of the ethical ideas, you know, that 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 you know the two of you have been talking about, to people who don't, you know, to to the urban part of our society, and create some sort of model of a seventh year of less business activity, and we could afford it, and 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 it would work. You could, you could sort of envision a way that, that the world could get that way and God could help us along. Uh, so I don't think, that's, I don't think his, his vision is only messian messianic, but we sure are not anywhere close to that right now. We seem to unfortunately be moving the wrong way on some of those priorities. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think, I was just saying that like, I, I, I don't know if I, I disagree with that, but like, I think he's sort of at the point in the 1970s when he's writing it, the amount of work that would have to be done to kind of transform society into a, basically like a, a modern capitalist nation state can't do that. With all of the other concerns and priorities that the nation state Israel has and like you know, the only way, like, there isn't really a way to, to have that kind of revolutionary transformation, I think, would probably be, you know, at, the, at that point when he's writing, even though maybe we could try and imagine, you know, could you incrementally, you know, make changes to eventually get there, but. Right, but that? I think he, he's gone. Yeah, even though he wants to reject a certain kind of formalism, right, or just to say, oh, well, you, you think that you've, you've, you've gotten the formal solution and therefore you're home free. You're not. Why? Because you haven't done it, really. You haven't really done Shemitah as it, as it was meant to be, right? You haven't suspended agricultural production. You haven't released debts. But the idea that, like, oh, actually what Shemitah is supposed to be is a a kind of restructuring of the labor economy in the seventh year, that doesn't, that's like not on the radar, right? Even, and so there's a way in which he's, he's a deeply formal, it's still a deeply formal like structure, a really formal way of thinking about it. Cause like the, the, the proposal that like Richard just made is not one that he would recognize as Shemitah. He'd be like, that's not Shemitah. That's like a nice thing. That's like kind of connected to Shemitah, but like actual Shemitah is, letting the land lie fallow. Um, the other thing I think that's just worth noting is for someone who, you know, kind of in a lot of ways revolutionized how, how at least Torah learning in English was taking place um, in a lot of Orthodox communities um, in, in his lifetime, the possibility that learning would get, your, get you out of this is not raised here. Um, and that Rev Cook really thinks that like, you know, if you, you can sort of think your way out of this or you can learn your way out of this. Um, and Rav Aaron is not optimistic that will be sufficient for most people. Um, I think the next question, so the, the, the last point I, I wanna make before we'll, we're, we're sort of already over is um, you might have the following kind of worry or at least I have the following worry. Um, Rav Aaron's worried about a kind of path, uh, like a kind of passive approach to Shemitah where like, this doesn't really affect me. I don't really have to deal with it. And I don't even feel any loss. But I think if we say, oh, it's a tragedy. There's nothing we can do here. It's just a tragedy. That also can lead to a kind of passive moral response where you say, look, like this is a terrible situation. I like got to choose between two bad options. Therefore it kind of doesn't matter how I choose. Like that, that way of thinking about, about this sort of problem um, I think can be really, can be, can be worrying and can lead you to kind of 
assume that two options are equivalent even when they're not. Um, so I think the, the tragedy formulation may be hard to live with. Yeah, and I think hopefully we can leave you tonight with right two sort of ideas, right? I'm, as like what Judy was saying, like certain ways our lived experience of Shmita is this one of like, it doesn't, we don't really spend a lot of time having to think about it. Um, we can kind of ignore it. We don't feel like we're participating in it. We're not getting any of this like moral, spiritual benefit through, you know, beca because of the Hatta Mahira and these things. So in certain ways, like this does kind of speak to maybe what we, in certain ways, how we experience it. And maybe we should kind of note that and, and, and kind of think about what we've lost. At the same time, like we can also leave with a more positive vision that like the Hatta and these workarounds were the thing we had to do. They were the right thing to do. And they are in certain ways still participating in Shemitah and in its moral work. And we can also talk about Shemitah and learn about Shemitah and thus sort of participate it and still get some of that vision, even if it's a little bit watered down or a little bit lessened. Um, so, you know, can sit with those with those two ideas um, as we go off for another week. Um, I think next week we're going to be thinking about um, labor justice and economics in Shemitah. Um, so some similar questions, some different questions from, from this time and last time, um, but it should be interesting and hopefully important. All right. Thank you, uh, Ms. Dean and Ms. Zager. It was lovely to get the chance to hear and learn with you. Uh, thank you everyone who joined us today, both in Zoom and to everyone who, and to anyone tuning in on Facebook, Facebook Live. We're going to continue our Springsbound programming tomorrow night at 1 p at 1 p.m. with a new class starting with Dr. Dora Brandi called Hili Haaretz, Changes in Meaning of the Holy Place in Zionism in Heschel's Thought. Um, and you can find more information on upcoming classes as well as kind of all of our classes on our website, bisha.org slash classes and to our wonderful teachers. Thank you for the opportunity to learn with you and to everyone who attended. I hope to see you again soon. <laughs>